Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz guitarist Doug McDonald. He spoke at length about his latest 2019 city with his quartet, an album called Organisms featuring Doug on guitar, Bob Shepard on tenor sax, Carrie Frank on the Hammond B3 organ, and Ben Schultz on the drums. This cat is a West Coast-based journeyman whose career has taken him from Hawaii to Vegas, Los Angeles to Manhattan, Spain, Finland, Estonia, and the UK. Originally from Philadelphia, he began his career in Hawaii, where he played at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. Relocating to Vegas, Doug found himself immersed in a vibrant music scene and playing in lounges and showrooms with jazz giants. He has a lot of tales and a lot of great insights, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Doug, how are you? How you doing, Joe? Good to see you. Hey, good. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for taking a minute for Neon Jazz. I appreciate it. Of course. So your latest album with your quartet called Organisms has you on guitar, Bob Shepard on tenor, um, Carrie Frank on the B3, and Ben on the drums. And I want to know, what was your artistic vision collectively for this project? Well, between the players, for example, I think there's a very um, diverse section of careers here. Um, you know, Bob Shepard has played with all sorts of artists, and uh, he's kind of more in, I would say, the progressive part of jazz, and I've been more in the mainstream, and that alone is kind of interesting because it was kind of a fresh thing. Having Bob doing um, more mainstream stuff, uh, you know, through the years I recorded a lot of um, what not quite traditional jazz, but getting more towards that, Bob Cooper and Snooky Young and you know, Ray Brown, Plaz Johnson, which is more mainstream. Bob is more cutting-edge progressive. So I think it was a good meld, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, blending. And then also Carrie Frank is um, a young player, and he's uh, into a lot of different genres. And Ben is, too, the drummer. So I thought it was a good cross-section of, um, you know, um, styles, you know, playing together, this mainstream project. Sure. So you're originally from the land of Coltrane. You started your career in Hawaii. You are known as kind of a journeyman West Coast guy now. So you've had all these flavors of things going on. Talk to me a little bit about maybe your beginnings in jazz and how it's evolved to the sound you have now. Well, what happened is, uh, Joe, I uh, was born in Philly and I grew up in Hawaii. And I spent a couple short visits in Las Vegas and eventually up ended up in L.A. Then I went to the New York area and lived out in Montclair, New Jersey, and then back to L.A., and I think what that all means is, like in Philly, there was a lot of music, even though it was kind of young to actually go see it. There was stuff on the radio and the TV. And I was telling Ben earlier, I wish I had, you know, in the early 50s, I wish I was able to go out and hear a lot of these people. I was too young to really know about it and started to learn about them. And then, um, you know, we got to Las Vegas for a minute and I would see Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin on the billboards. We had their records, but, you know, once again, I was too young to go inside. And then going to Hawaii was very, um, you know, multicultural, all, all sorts of music you'd see there, including Hawaiian music and music from Asia and, of course, jazz and everything else. And I started to play jazz over there with Trummy Young, a great jazz trombone player, and uh, Gabe Baltazar, a fantastic alto player that had recorded with Dizzy Gillespie and Oliver Nelson. When I finally got to L.A., I got to associate with a lot of the West Coast jazz artists. But I think everywhere you go influences your playing and kind of molds your style. So who were you listening to early on that really got you going, that got your mind wrapped around the notion that you, you not only that you like jazz, but planting the seeds of you becoming a musician? 
I really liked on guitar. I really liked the cross section of players. I liked everybody from West Montgomery to Johnny Smith. Their styles were very diverse. And I remember Miles Davis saying, "Put all the players you like in a funnel, and basically that'll you know get your style." And I always liked so many different players like George Van Epps and um, Howard Roberts. I got to know a lot of these people when I when I came west. I met Howard in Hawaii, but and Johnny Smith, but I got to hang out with them in L.A., even though they live, all lived in different places. George Van Epps, uh, you know, Grant Green was another guy I liked. I, I think they all had something different. And, you know, I think that um, as far as um, other instrumentalists go, I was always interested in writing and played trombone as a kid in the school band, so I always wanted to write because I could sit in the section and play, you know, the inner parts on the trombone. And it also taught me breathing. So I would say that that's another big influence, too, is... is um, the large ensembles, you know, cause eventually I started to write for like woodwinds and brass, things like that. So when did you know this was going to be your life? You were going to be a musician, you were going to play guitar and this was going to be go time. I think pretty much as a teenager and I seemed to be like an all or nothing at all type personality. And I felt like, geez, you know, this is it for me. I always liked melodies. I always liked rhythms and maybe that's why the guitar stayed and the trombone didn't. And, uh, you know, I went into writing because you have, uh, I always felt like writing was my second instrument because you could orchestrate, you could arrange, you know, uh, compose. Um, and I studied conducting as well. And I, I just feel like the um, music for me, uh, I, I really didn't see myself doing anything else. And I knew early on that persistence was the key with it. You know, we've covered geography here. Clearly, you've been all over the place, and you've you've gotten a lot of flavors of different places in this country. So let's talk about personas that you've been around. You've been around the likes of, you know, Ray Anthony, Bill Holman, John Clayton, Rosemary Clooney, there's there, Ray Brown, Buddy Rich. There's all of these people and all of these names. What did these people and their wisdom and legendary status teach you about being a musician? What advice, what things have stuck over the years that have helped you? I think that's a great question too. I think like if you mentioned somebody like Bill Holman, um, I remember having lunch with Bill Holman. It was a Spud Murphy, the guy I studied arranging with, along with his student, David Blumberg. We were having a luncheon for Spud and I was lucky enough to sit at the table with <laughs> Bill Holman and Herbie Hancock and all these people. And it's funny, just the conversations alone. I remember Bill telling me something like, he would write three lines and harmonize them, and he said he wanted it to sound like improvised music. He didn't want it to sound like uh, written music. And so for a writer, that's a very open thing. And Herbie Hancock had a lot of interesting things to say about performing. One time we had a luncheon and Horace Silver was there. And I think all these people, uh, like you mentioned, the um, you know the Ray Brown and all these people, I think you learn so much from them just by osmosis, hanging out with them. And I always have told students, you know, go hear somebody because that's like a free lesson. I remember watching people play. The first time I saw Joe Pass play or I saw Howard Roberts or I saw Herb Ellis, um, it was sort of like, I see, oh, I see I see what it's like to get it from this side. Like, in other words, I heard it on the record, but now I'm hearing it live. And, and just by osmosis, you learn something. If you get one thing out of that performance, you're, you're way ahead of the game. So you're clearly geographically restless. So I think also, too, with the way that you've put together your 13-plus CDs, you've had different vibes. You've gone from duos, trios, quartets, big bands, solo. You've had all of these different configurations. 
has this just kind of happened? Is this what you want to do? Did you want to explore and have something bigger and smaller? How did all of these kinds of things come together for your projects? Well, I think um, the one of the most interesting things we've done is the 13-piece band that I haven't been able to do lately, and that was like the woodwind quintet and the brass quintet. So it's woodwinds and brass. So we actually did a thing with strings, and that was uh, kind of an ambitious thing to do because it – it's it's a it's an orchestrating thing, it's a composing thing, an arranging thing, and I think that's reason the reason why for different things like the new album, the quartet one. I wanted to do some compositional stuff that was atonal, but also go into tonal music. So the three compositions are uh, at least two of them. There's some atonal stuff in there, and then we go into like regular tonal diatonic music. But with a quartet, it's a challenge. So I think each one is a challenge, like if you do solo guitar, if you do a duo. Duos are fun because you have a lot of freedom. The large band, um, it's 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 a writing challenge. And then um, with the trio quartet, whether it's guitar, bass, and drums, or organ, uh, guitar and drums, and a, and a tenor or something, whatever it is, or piano, guitar, bass, and drums, each one... Uh, the guitar has to function in a different way. I think guitar can be a very good blending instrument. I was talking to Kim Richmond one day about that, how it's a very good blending instrument. Like if you have a, a big band or a orchestra, the guitar can double, let's say, the French horn line or it can double the clarinet or whatever the case may be. Touching on what you're saying yeah. about the um, uh, the original compositions, you right. know, when, when you presented those, initially I was a little, you know, I, I was like, well, how is this going to work? <laughs> you and- were paranoid, I remember <laughs> <laughs> and we did, you know, we, we trimmed some of it down, but I, I think some of the atonal stuff really works mostly because it's, you know, it's it's kept to the point and then the, the blowing sections were much more, you know, straightforward, which ultimately is what this project is. It's, it's a song. It's, it's about song. As Chef yeah. was saying, it is a blowing record. Right. Exactly. Very much so. And I, I think so, the atonal stuff dresses it up a little bit. It's a nice variety. Uh, with a large band, it's it's a lot easier to do. I, as I told the guys before, I didn't want the writing to bog the group down because in a trio and quartet, uh, like especially let's say something like this, the organ has to give you rhythm, and if you bog it down with too much reading, it, it's it's not going to swing as much. So no, I didn't feel like it was bogged down yeah, at all. But I was trying to avoid not overdoing that. You know, mm-hmm. that was the thing. I think we tried to, uh, we got a good blend of um, straight ahead mainstream stuff with some compositional stuff, a little bit of a, some of standards, some originals, and there's some Latin, there's a 3 4. I think we got into, you know, enough different little, yeah. little grooves and stuff. So, speaking of the trepidation going into this, did that wear away pretty quick? Was there a really good melding of minds and musicians once you got in the studio? I think even in rehearsal, I could tell that we had a good chemistry. I thought that the rehearsals, a, yeah, yeah. I, I think the benefit was was having the opportunity to rehearse and having right. everybody here in LA, right? Uh, a lot of recordings you can't rehearse. Uh, a lot of studio things you can't rehearse. You have to go in and do it. Of course, they allow extra time, but I would say we were pretty prepared. You know, I mean, you could always want to prepare more, but yeah. you know, it's a it's a never ending <laughs> thing. But I think I think the rehearsals helped a lot. The two short rehearsals we had. Well, you guys, you jazz people are like machines, though. I mean, you always hear like, you know, hey, Radiohead's going to the studio and it takes them like two months. You know, it's like it's all of this long drawn out. You guys get in there, you're well-oiled machines and you just bang it out pretty quick. Yeah, considering um, I um, have always been of the mindset to do a jazz record 
with a with a morning session and an afternoon session. That's all the way we've always done it. Even with a large band, we're kind of prepared. And um, some stuff you leave for on the spot because you want that spontaneity, and also you want a freshness. You don't want to be. I wouldn't want to say over rehearse, but you get what I'm driving at, where you're burned out. You know. No, I thought everything yeah. that we did was yes. yeah was was definitely sufficient for the. The date, and it was one date that we did the whole band Yeah, I'm stuff. used to doing it that way. I, I talk to a lot of, um, like you say, rock people, and boy, they spend like you know a week <laughs> on a song. I don't have that kind of patience. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's just the nature of improv. There's just, yeah. you, you're so well-oiled, you're ready to roll. It's like, mm-hmm. it's just kind of a part of your architecture. So you are you still performing 300-plus dates a year? I work a lot, and I do a lot of teaching. Um, I am based in L.A. I, I just went to um, Detroit and did a gig, um, and then went to, uh, with the penis, Lenore Raphael, we went to uh, Florida and, and played uh, in um, Orlando and also uh, Del Rey at the Arts Garage. And uh, I, um, I'm going to go to Hawaii next month, uh, around the middle of March. Also, to Temecula, California, there's a festival but mostly I, I work around L.A. and Palm Springs because uh, they're about an hour, 45 minutes apart if you drive fast like I do. <laughs> but yeah. uh, the thing is, is that uh, certain areas have more live music than others. Um, L.A. is very crowded and uh, very spread out. So I think a lot of ta- times certain clubs had trouble because, you know, somebody lives in Marina Del Rey. They don't want to drive all the way up to Burbank to hear a, a group, you know. And then you have driving, uh, you know, drinking and driving can be an issue, you know. Uh, but in Palm Springs, it's kind of all more contained a little bit. Obviously, New York City has a real advantage of that. But um, well, Doug, are you saying that there's traffic in Los Angeles? Oh, <laughs> this morning, definitely, for sure. <laughs> I went the opposite I way. It. I went from um, uh, North Hollywood to Culver City, and it was crazy, believe me. <laughs> yeah, when when musicians come to Kansas City, they're like, what, what do you mean traffic? Yeah. You know, it's just there's nothing, yeah. absolutely nothing. So up to this point, you've got a new album coming out. You, you've clearly been all over the place. You're very fluid with what you do. Are you happy with where you're at with your career right now? I would say so. You know, it's funny. I talk to a lot of artists, and they're always looking for another agent or another place they can't get into. And I guess it's human nature to want what you can't de- get. But I, I have to realize that I think Barney Kessel once told me, you have to look at everything as a balance, you know. Uh, like, for example, in early in his, his career, he was involved with jazz, the Philharmonic. He recorded with everybody from Oscar Peterson to Lester Young to Billie Holiday, et cetera. And then, you know, later on, he was more on his own. So I try to look at that from from speaking to him. And you look at the whole thing and it's it's you have to have a balanced life, too. You have to have a life outside of music. So I would say, yes, I'm I'm very content. You know, we all want to do the better gig. Everybody wants to, you know, I guess get a bigger, you know, slice of the pie. But basically, you'd have to look at the whole picture. And I think the real gratification for me is learning stuff all the time, getting back to the writing and learning to conduct. And then playing has always been my main thing. But like, as far as the playing goes, you know, to learn something every day is the gratification to me. So you've clearly dedicated your life to jazz. You've been in it. You've been around. You've played with all kinds of people. It's very clear. So why do you love jazz? Why do I love jazz? I think jazz, uh, that's the question, right? Why do I love jazz? Yeah, why do you love jazz? I think, I think the, um, the thing with jazz music is uh, when I first started, um, uh, sort of like what Herb Ellis said, 
you first start, it's like nondescript music. You're not sure what to play. You hear all kinds of stuff. Luckily, I heard a lot of music. And then, you know, I started to get into blues because, you know, it had that, that great sound. But I noticed the jazz stuff was sort of like the classical music of the blues. And it was the American style of classical music to me. And so it made more sense for an instrumentalist to get into jazz and the, the, the blues that had a jazz uh, groove or the jazz that had a blues groove either way. So I, I have one more question for you. Right. It's this. Everything is going to come down to this. Everyone has a version or a perception of who you are, your family, your friends and your colleagues, everyone around you. But you know who you are. So tell me, who do you think you are? Well, I think um, there's an advantage to having been around a long time. I'm, I'm 65. I'll be 66 later this year. And I think, you know, I always think, gee, I wish I knew a lot of this at 19. But being a professional musician, I can feel good about it, you know. And as I said earlier, having a balanced life, I think, is a good thing. You know, I like to get away from playing, too. So uh, who I am, I guess, is uh, basically I can't separate myself from the music. But, you know, I like to kind of just chill out and, you know, get away from it. I think uh, Howard Roberts used to say, wash the windshield, you know, so you have a clear slate. And Miles Davis once in a while used to lay off just to so you're artistically fresh, you know. But I think, you know, like you said, this is me. I mean, this is what I've been doing since I was 13. And, uh, you know, there was times I would say, geez, why am I doing this? You know, this is crazy. Nobody wants this music. You know, it's certainly not popular, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. And I say, God, I could have done something else. It would have been a lot, lot simpler. But I think this is who we are, the music. And, and I think it, it almost chooses us. You know, it's like as a kid, you go, wow. But I say from what I said earlier, persistence is really the key to this thing. It's a great answer. I love it. Thank I love you. how very, this answer can be. Doug, thank you for taking some time out. Good luck with organisms. And I yeah, appreciate your time. Great to be yeah. here. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Philadelphia, Las Vegas, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Doug for his time, his music, and his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Jazz.